This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. I want to begin by, um, alhamdulillah, I have a little more of my voice right now than I did earlier today. So alhamdulillah, that's all praises due to God for that because um, this morning at the airport I was like trying to order coffee and the dude was like, what? (laughs) So anyways, alhamdulillah. a little bit better now. Hopefully you can hear me. Uh, I begin my talks, the, the dua that I began with. First of all, uh, we begin and we should begin everything in the name of God. And so when I say Bismillah, I'm talking about, uh, it, it's, it's actually a whole way in which we live our lives, in fact. Uh, and that is in the name of God. Uh, because... <coughs> We've all been put on this earth, right? We're all here together. Uh, But there is actually a purpose why we were put on this earth. And a lot of people go through their whole lives and they don't know what that purpose is. Um, But God has told us in His final revelation, uh, which is the Qur'an, and on the, you know, through the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, what that purpose is. There's a very important ayah in the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسِ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ And what this verse means is that <coughs> we have not created jinn and human beings except to fulfill عُبُدِيَّ except to worship us, to know us. So Allah, here God is talking about Himself. And so we learn from this verse the answer to a question that a lot of people have, which is like, what am I doing here, right? Um, kind of like, what am I doing here on a on a like a, a lesser scale? Like, what am I doing here in college right now? What am I doing here? You know, some people aren't sure what they're majoring. Um, and then there's a bigger question of what am I doing here on this earth, right? Why was I put here? And this is a very clear answer of what am I doing here? And the answer is that we were put into existence, in fact, um, in order to know and love and worship God. This creates um, a whole different way in which we live our lives. Uh, And and so what it does is it gives meaning to everything that we do. And it's important, too, to understand what worship means. Because I think that for a lot of people, and maybe in a lot of different faiths, different religions, different ways of worshiping God. Um, Worship has been reduced to just prayer. Worship has been reduced to just going to (coughs) a service once a week. Um, And and that's what is considered worship, right? Something that's ritualistic. But the concept of abudeya in Islam, the concept of worship in Islam is very, very... Um, much more inclusive than just that and it's deeper than just the external rituals it is true that the external rituals are part of worship of course the prayer is part of our worship 
and the rituals are part of our worship and going to these services, you know, praying Jum'ah and, and listening to, to the khutbah, and this is part of our worship. However, worship is more encompassing than, than just that. And therefore, it is actually possible to turn your, um, your studies into an act of worship. It's actually possible to turn marriage into an act of worship. And to turn, um, you know, being kind to one another. Um, you know, uh, helping the environment. Picking up something harmful from the road. Smiling at someone. Being kind, being giving, being generous. Um, working to stop oppression. All of these are acts of worship if they're done in the right way and with the right intention. And this actually transforms our entire life because then what happens is a person has meaning to what they're doing. And if it is done for the sake of God, then it can be considered part of your worship. And if it is, of course, done based on the example that we were given, um, which is the Prophet Because, you know, sometimes people, they might say, well, I want to worship God in this new special way, right? Um, but what we have to be very careful about is that we have an example in the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And in fact, we're told that his example is the most beautiful example. Um, that Allah tells us that he describes him as uswatun hasan, which means it's, it's a beautiful example. And we cannot improve on his example. We can't say, well, you know, I think that this thing would be better. Um, this better way to do it because he already has perfected the best way to do it and that's why he is our example so the more we stick to the sunnah the closer we can get to you know having everything in our life be an act of worship in the proper way the prophet muhammad and this is also important to realize that when god sent messengers he did not send angels to us to teach us but he sent human beings just like us he always sent human beings. And even when the angels came, they came to the human being with the message. From the beginning of time, all of the prophets and messengers were humans. From Adam all the way to Muhammad We believe obviously in all of these messengers. We believe in Jesus as a messenger. We believe in Abraham as a messenger. We believe in Moses and all of these messengers. And in fact, we actually believe that they all came with the same message. A lot of times people misunderstand and think Islam is a new religion. Islam is not a new religion. Islam is the oldest religion. Because Islam, the word Islam, just means submission. Submission to what? And this is where we have to ask the question, submission to what? Because every single human being submits to something. Everyone is in a state of submission to something. But everyone submits to different things. So it's kind of like we take different objects of worship. So some people, they submit themselves to money. Or they worship money. This is a person who money is the most important thing to them. It is what they revolve their life and existence around. It's all about money. This is a type of worship. And so that person also has an object of worship. But it just isn't God. It's money. And other people take their own selves as, as um, objects of worship. Other people take and submit to their own desires. And that's also a form of submission. 
But again, it's not submission to God. It's submission to my desires. Such a person is someone who, you know, whatever they feel like doing, they do, regardless of whether it is moral or immoral, regardless of whether it hurts others or it doesn't. I feel like it, so I do it. Um, whatever makes me happy, whatever feels good to me, that's what I do. And so this is also a type of worship, but it's a worship of one's own desires. And, and this is where morality doesn't, it doesn't play a part, right? I feel like it, so I do it. It feels good, so I do it. This is, um, actually turns a human being into resembling the, the animals. Because an animal has urges, just like we do, right? An animal has the urge, has the desire to eat. The animal has the desire to drink. The animal has the desire to reproduce, right? So these are desires that animals have. However, the difference and the crucial difference between a human being and an animal is that a human being can stop and think, wait, is this moral? Wait, is this right? Is this the right thing to do? Just because I feel an urge, do I just obey it? Or do I stop and ask? And when we, when we, when we give up that, 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 that part of the equation of stopping and asking and control and self-control and, 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 and personal choice, right? Because God gave us free choice. And if we don't use that to make moral decisions, then we, we, we're really no different than animals. Because an animal, again, you know, before an animal reproduces, the animal doesn't ask, wait, are we married? Right? Well, let's, let's go, you know, sign the contract first. Animal doesn't do that. Because there's no concept of this. It's right. It's like I, I'm attracted to this other, you know, person or animal, the opposite gender. So, you know, we hear and we obey our desires. That's the way an animal moves. And this is why when a human being begins to live in the same way, th then they're not distinguishing themselves from animals. We have been given an extra privilege above animals, and it's called free choice. It's the ability to reason and to think, is this right or wrong? We don't just feel a desire and obey it. And when you do, then you become a person who is, um, it, it, it's an obedience and a submission to one's desires. God describes these people in the Quran, in Surah Al-Jathith, and he says, do you see the one, what's translated as, do you see the one who takes his own desires as his ilah, as his God, as his object of worship? How do you worship your own desires? Is that you obey your desires no matter what. And so Islam, again, what is Islam? Islam is to submit, but not to any of these other things. It's not to submit to money. It's not to submit to society standards of right and wrong, which change every day. It's not to submit to what's in fashion. It's not to submit to my own desires, but it's to submit to God and God alone. That's what Islam means. And that's why Prophet Adam was a Muslim. And Prophet Jesus was a Muslim. And Prophet Abraham was a Muslim. Because a Muslim means one who submits themselves to God and God alone. And that's why you see that the message given to all prophets was the same message. And that is the message of Tawheed. The message of pure monotheism. Monotheism, now, again, monotheism is a term that we often don't understand. Because sometimes we limit monotheism to mean, 
yeah, we believe in um, one creator, which is part of monotheism. But some people believe in one creator. In fact, the people of Quraysh at the time of the Prophet ﷺ believed in a creator. They believed in Allah. But they used to say that we are worshipping our idols, our stone idols, to bring us closer to Him. So they, it's not that they didn't believe in a God. They believed in a God. But the concept of Tawheed, the concept of monotheism, is not only about believing that there is a God who created the universe and then He has nothing to do with my life. Okay? That's not full and pure monotheism. Monotheism is, yes, to believe that there is one Creator and that there is one sustainer of the universe. But it is also to believe and to practice that He is the only one who is deserving of my full obedience, my full worship, my ultimate love, my ultimate fear, and my ultimate hope, and my ultimate dependency. All of that is Tawheed. That's all part of Tawheed. And so every prophet um, came with this message, Ya qawmi, abutullah ma lakum min ilahin ghayr. O my people, worship God. You have no other ilah but Him. The question now is, what does ilah mean? You know, when you become a Muslim, you say one statement and you become a Muslim. As a Muslim, we say this statement many times a day. And it is what? Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. This statement alone will make a person go from being a disbeliever to being a believer, to being a Muslim. So this is a really important statement. The question is, what does it mean? We will translate it. And, and, and when I say this, this, is, this isn't like... Um, a lot of times we think, well, we already know what that means, right? I can translate it. Means, oh, it means there's no God but Allah. First of all, it's not a good translation. Second of all, we don't really know what it means. La ilaha illallah means that there is no ilah. Now we're back to that word. There is no ilah except for God. Alright, I guess I can't understand that. But what is an ilah? What is an ilah? This is really the, the central question that we have to ask in our lives. What is an ilah? Now ilah, the word ilah, when you look at the root word, the root of this word, it has many meanings, but ultimately it means the thing that you that you adore and worship and obey. In other words, it is that thing that you put at the center of your existence, at the center of your life. And ilah is the first thing that comes to your mind when you wake up in the morning. And ilah is the last thing on your mind before you sleep. And ilah is that in your life which has so much power over you that you would do anything for it. And ilah is the thing that occupies your mind and heart most. And ilah is what you obey above all other things. So in ilah, again, now we have to bring it back to understanding it is not just what you pray to. That's why I, I argue to you that every person has an ilah. Everybody does. Everyone has something that that's most important to them, right? Yes or no? Whether or not you believe in God, you have something that's most important to you. You have something that you live your life for. You have something that you love most. 
You have something that you fear most. You have something that you would sacrifice anything for. You have something. And like I said, for some people, that is their own selves, their own ego, their own desires. For some people, it is money. They are a slave to the dollar. That's the reason why you see people that when the stock market crashes, they take a pistol to the head. It's because they lost their ilah. Make sense? There's no more reason to live because I lost all my money. Because that was the center, that was everything to me. But because they took something other than God and put it in a place that only God should be, so when it's gone, they break. This is complete breaking. This is devastation. This is why Romeo and Juliet didn't want to live anymore when they thought that the other one was dead. Because their center, you know what I mean? Their reason for existence, their purpose was this other person. And when this other person was no longer in the picture, you no longer have a reason to exist. And therefore, they committed suicide. So I mean, suicide is an, is an extreme example. Of course, you know, when someone commits suicide because um, well, they lost a lot of money, or they commit suicide because somebody broke up with them, that these are extreme examples of what I'm talking about. Because what happened here there's actually one example I read about um, that happened in India, and, and I, I guess this seems to happen, um, you know, sometimes. Um, <coughs> there was a woman, and she was unable to have a child, unable to have a child first. I think she tried so long, maybe like 19 years or something, and she was unable to have a child, and finally she burnt herself alive. And the reason that, that they said the reason that she burned herself alive is because she could not have a child. I want to reflect on that for a moment. Because not being able to have a child is a very sad situation. It is a very hard test. But if a person believes that there is no reason for them to exist outside of being able to have a child, then there's a problem. And that is because the person's, you know, their, their reason, their center was being a mother. And that should never be our reason of existence, although motherhood itself, motherhood is a very noble role. But when you make motherhood your reason for existence, then what happens when you lose your child? Or what happens if you can't have a child? Or what happens when your child grows up and gets married? This is, this is the whole not able to let go, <laughs> right, that we have. Why do we have a problem sometimes the mother-in-law syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, phenomenon. <laughs> the mother-in-law phenomenon is a, is a woman who gave her a whole life in some way, or sacrificed her whole life for her child, right? And in a sense, lived for that child, her whole life, right? In a sense, the child was at the center. Her child was at the center. Her role as a mother was her most important role. So when the child grows up and gets married, she's not about to let go of her center. So she just can't let go. This is what a false attachment is. Because there, and, and, and of course, let's, let's clarify here, all mothers love their children. 
But I'm not talking about love. I'm talking about a sense of almost worship. I'm talking about taking something other than God and putting it in the place where only God should be, at the center, at the, the reason of my existence. Right? I, if I live only to be a mother, then I've lost the balance. If I live only to be a wife, or I live only to be a doctor, or I live only to be a, a millionaire, then I've lost balance. The proper balance is this, that our center is God, and that is why every prophet came to teach this to, to their people. This simple message. Oh my people, worship God. You have no other ilah but Him. Same message. Even though the books, different books and different times, same message, which is that God is the only thing worthy of being that central in your existence. Okay? That you define your purpose by Him and not by anything else. Not by the way you look, not by how much money you have, not by your career, not by your family, not by your ethnicity, not by anything else. But those are all things which are um, come and go. Those are all things that come and go. Because we know that everything in life, <coughs> everything in life is passing away. And this is a reality that even an atheist cannot deny. Right? Even an atheist cannot deny the fact that they are aging with every day that they live and that they will die. Can anyone deny it? You don't have to believe in God, but you cannot deny it, even if you don't believe in God. So everything is passing away, and there's only one thing that remains, and that is God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, and He says, Kullu man rahman Kullu man Everything is passing away. And what remains is the countenance of your Lord. So that's the only thing that remains. And when we step back and we look at our lives and the things that we get so caught up in, sometimes it's school, sometimes it's making money, sometimes it's our friends, sometimes it's our relationships, sometimes it's motherhood or whatever it is. The things that we get so caught up in, they're all passing away. They are all passing away. They don't last. A woman, we live in a society, unfortunately, <clears throat> that teaches women that their value is based on how they look. This is the simple message. Their value is based on how thin they are, how attractive they can be to men. And if you're beautiful outside, then you're considered successful. <laughs> That's success. And no matter how successful you are in any other field, it will be your looks that are highlighted. And this is actually, you just study the media and you find this. Um, when you look at, for example, I did a study, um, thank you, I was studying, looking at the portrayal of women in sports, female athletes. And what I found was, <coughs> when men, when male athletes are depicted, it's all about how they achieved and their, you know, how they play their sport, right? It's about their achievements. But when female athletes were depicted, it was all about how hot they were. It was all about how hot they were. 
and how, and they, when you, when, if you did a search, like just a simple Google search of female athletes, all, like the fir whole first page basically was rating the hottest female athletes. That's, that's, that's the woman's value. That's how hot she is. And men, if you look at male athletes, it's all about, you know, which one scores the most, right? Which one achieves the most. That's nothing to do with looks. I mean, we talk about Kobe, you're not talking about the way he looks. Are you talking about how many how many points he how many rebounds, right? But with women, that's not the way that women are judged in our society. Women are judged based on how they look. And that's why actually at the time when I was doing the research, Anna Kornikova, <coughs> all of us have probably heard of her tennis player, was the most highly endorsed female athlete. And yet she couldn't really play tennis. She wasn't very good at tennis. But she was still the most highly endorsed female athlete. And the question is why? And it was just because of the way she looks. So that's, that's how women are judged. This is, you know, and, and, and unfortunately what happens is we as women, we get caught up in it, right? We get caught up in it. But all of these things, so a woman, suppose she achieves, you know, she's a model, she's a supermodel. Okay, she got that achievement. What is she going to look like 20 years from now? What is she going to look like 30 years from now? Does it last? Is that going to last? All the plastic surgery in the world, can it make it last forever? No. So these things that we hold on to, we define ourselves by, they don't last. So what is lasting? And that's what we have to, at some point in our life, we have to sit and ask ourselves that question, what does matter? And what is lasting? You know, right now, you know, we're in school, you're caught up in your grades and you're caught up in school. Yeah, right? And it's like kind of like the end of the world because you got a bad grade. And I remember that when I was in school. And now when I look back, it doesn't matter. Even though I'm not like, you know, it's not like the hereafter and I'm looking back. It's just a few years later. And it just doesn't matter. But it, at that time, you know, when I got back that organic chem, the first, oh my God. <laughs> I was also like kind of pre-med myself. Then then I changed my field, but I finished all my pre-med requirements, all of them. Um, the only thing I had left was a two-credit organic lab. I hated lab, so I was like, unless I'm really sure I'm gonna go to med school, I'm gonna take that lab. But I took all the rest of their requirements. And and, the, and it was like the first time I got that um, organic test back, and it was like, it was like the first time I really bombed an exam. I was like, whoa. Um, it was just, you know, it felt like the end of the world, right? And you know what? It's not. <laughs> just, you know, when you, when you, later on, you look back and you're just like, it doesn't have any bearing in my life whatsoever. And I'm not telling you to bomb your tests, but um, I'm just talking about perspective. Um, I'm just talking about perspective. So it, it, the idea is that we really have to take time to step away and put things into perspective. What really matters? What am I really doing here? What am I really doing here? Yes, I know we're students, right? But what am I really, really doing here? What's my purpose? And ultimately, you're going to have to ask yourself, who am I trying to please? You're going to have to ask that question. Because there's so many different people that you're going <clears> to <throat> run into. So many different things that you're going to try to like get approval. You're going to try to please... But ultimately, you really have to make a choice of who is it that you really are trying to please. And all these people that you try to please in the meantime, again, 
it's all passing away, right? They're not always going to be there. And their approval is ultimately like, you know, when you're playing uh, Monopoly, how many people have played Monopoly before? Okay, most of you at some point in your life have played Monopoly. Um, Monopoly has, right, the point of it is like to own as many things as you can, right, and, and then to make as much money, right? And the winner is the one who has the most Monopoly money. So while you're playing Monopoly, you know, and suppose you're like, <laughs> you're winning, and you have, you have the most money. Um, it feels good, right, for like a second, right? <laughs> but let me ask you this. What can you buy with Monopoly money? Can you take your Monopoly money and go buy a house? Can you take your Monopoly money and go buy a car? No, wouldn't that be funny? Someone should try that. <laughs> go to the store and like pay with Monopoly money. That would be a good you know, exercise. The point is that the approval of people is just like Monopoly money. It, it's like it kind of like makes you feel good for a second, right? Because it's like an ego thing. But ultimately, it's worthless. Worthless in the sense of ultimately you can't buy anything with it. You can't buy anything with human praise. You can't. You can't buy anything with it in the real, in the real world. And the only approval that really matters is the approval of God. And that's the only currency that has any actual value. But we have so many illusions around us. It's just like playing Monopoly game. Life's like a big Monopoly game. Really. Um, so we run after these things, right? But they can't buy us anything. So perspective is extremely important. Now, does this mean that we leave our lives? That we don't go to school and we don't get married and we don't, you know, our neighbors and friends and, you know, um, <coughs> colleagues and stuff. And the answer is no. That the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, taught us the, the proper balance. That the proper balance to have in life is that we are involved in dunya. We, don't, we can't avoid that. Like, it, it is not um, the sunnah, it is not the example of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to pull away completely, not get married, not you know, have a job, but just be in the masjid all day. That is not the sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And in fact, one time, there were, um, he heard about, <coughs> or there were three people who came to him, two or three, and they said to him, one of them said to him, um, I will, they asked about his worship, okay, and then they decided, one of them decided, I'm going to pray all night, and I'm like, not sit and pray all night. Another one said, I'm going to not get married at all. It was just as a, as a way of being closer to God. Um, his choice, he's like, I'm not going to not get married at all. Another one said, I'll fast all the time you and not break my fast. So what they're trying to do is, they're trying to get closer to God in this, in this way. But the prophets, peace be upon him, responded to them and said that I have the most... God consciousness, the most fear of God. I'm the closest to God, and I get married to him, and I sleep some, and I pray some, and I fast some, and I break my fast. So what he's teaching them is that true nearness to God is not that you're not involved in dunya, but here's the key, um, and it's very, very difficult, but it's like there's a saying of Ali, 
in which he says that detachment from dunya or zuhud is not that you do not own anything, but that nothing owns you. So not that you do not own anything, that nothing owns you. You might have money, but do you own the money or does the money own you? Make sense? So again, it has to do with being involved in these things, but these things are not your center. That your center is always God. And so it's kind of like, while you're involved, while you're, you know, you, you, you get married, and you go to school, and you get involved in, you know, activities in here, and then you have friends, and you have, you know, you have a life in dunya. But the heart is with God. And that's the balance that we have to find and it's, it's often very difficult. The reason it's difficult is because we get distracted. And what happens is, if you think about it in this way, if you kind of bring this visual to mind, that the heart ultimately should be focused on God. So even while, you know, with my body, and with my limbs, I'm doing other things, right? I might be studying, or I might be you know, getting married, or I'm cooking, or whatever it is I'm doing. But the heart is facing God. That's how the prophets lived. They lived in this life, but their heart was with God. Now the problem is, and the reason this is so difficult, is because what happens is, <coughs> as soon as we get involved in another activity, our heart shifts and focuses on that. Do you guys understand what I mean? The heart shifts and now is facing whatever it is that they're doing in dunya instead of still being with God. So what happens is we allow all these things to absorb into our hearts until we actually become heedless of God. We become mind, you know, our prayer just becomes actions, just movements. But our heart is with the exam I'm studying for, the you know, person I want to marry, um, you know, what, what this person did to me, what this person posted about me, right? All of these kinds of things occupy us because the heart begins to absorb these activities instead of letting it just stay outside the heart. The heart, see, one beautiful example, uh, it's a metaphor that was used by one of the scholars. I think it's a really great example of what, of what this concept is. That he explained that this whole life, dunya, dunya is this world, right, is like an ocean. And that the hearts are like boats on the ocean. <clears throat> now when you think about a boat on the ocean, well, yes, it has to be there and it has to cross the ocean to get to its destination, right? But what happens if the boat allows the ocean to enter? What happens if there's a hole in the boat and the ocean enters into the boat? Well, let's think about the Titanic. Titanic was like massive, right? The unsinkable ship. It's like, this is the unsinkable ship. What happened? What happened is, the theory is that it just got a few holes in it. It hit a glacier and got a few holes in it. And because of those holes, the water entered. The ocean entered. And as a result, this massive ship, massive, split in half and destroyed and sunk. And that's what happens to the heart. That the heart in this life, the moment it allows dunya to enter, again, it's in dunya. We're not talking about leaving dunya. 
I'm not talking about you're not allowed to have money, you're not allowed to. You get married, no. You have those things, but you don't let those things enter the ship, right? You don't let those things absorb into the heart where you love and are attached to those things. Because when you do that, it becomes like that boat that allowed water into it. And when the boat, and when the heart allows dunya to enter, that's when the heart breaks. And that's when the heart becomes owned by dunya. You know the boat is in charge, right? The boat, it can steer itself so long as it does not allow the ocean to enter. But when a boat allows the ocean to enter, now who's in charge? The ocean, right? The boat doesn't have control anymore. The ocean has control. And this is what the idea is, that when you allow money to enter your heart, money controls you. You do not control your money. When you allow status to enter your heart, then status controls you. You do not control it. When you allow what other people think and your image to enter your heart, then that controls you. You don't control it anymore. And so this dunya was never intended to enter our hearts. Allah put us in this life to go through this life, but not to become part of it and to allow it to enter us. It's like being in this life, but not of this life. Because our true home and our first home was what? Paradise. That's where we began. And that's, inshallah, where we're returning. This, this stop that we have called dunya, called, you know, this life is just a stop. It's just a stop. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he described this, he said, you know, they were offering him like something comfortable to lay on. And he said, in this hadith, he said, Mali dunya. What do I have to do with this life? I'm like a traveler. Stops in the shade of a tree for a while and then continues on his path, on his journey. This life is just that shade of the tree. Right? We're just traveling through this life. And no matter how long you live, even if you live a hundred years, when you compare a hundred years to eternity, any math majors? <laughs> when you compare even a giant number to infinity, it looks like zero, doesn't it? It, it tends towards zero. The point here is that, is that even if you lived a hundred years, which most of us won't, we don't know how long, but even if you lived a hundred, that in comparison to all of eternity, which we know is the hereafter, this life is just a blink of the eye and compared to forever, right? It is just like the shade of that tree as you're traveling. And so we have to really have the mindset of a traveler. And I think it's like, subhanAllah, the Prophet speaks the truth, right? He said, be in this life like a traveler. This was his advice to us. You want to know how do you be, you know, maintain spirituality in college? How do you maintain at a, you know, at, a, at another level? How do you maintain spirituality throughout dunya? The answer is in this hadith. Be in this life like a traveler. Right now, <coughs> I'm not from Vermont. I'm traveling. In fact, I'm not from Cincinnati. I was traveling there too. Um, and so right now, I have I'm staying at a hotel. Right now, there is a certain mindset to a traveler, right? Now, I went and I entered the hotel room. Now, suppose I went in there and I didn't like the decorations on the wall. I didn't like them. Or I didn't like the color of the bedspread. 
how much trouble is that going to cause me? Right? When you are traveling, last time you were traveling and you stayed at a hotel, did you start furnishing your hotel room? Did you start getting attached to your hotel bed? And you didn't want to leave? Right? How many people, when you are traveling and you're staying at the hotel and you're staying at the Hilton or wherever you're staying, how many people started getting furnishing and started decorating their room and started complaining that, oh, I don't like the bed spread, I'm going to go buy a new one from, you know, like, oh, whatever, whatever home store you're going to go buy from. You don't do that. What's the reason? What is the reason? It's temporary. It's very simple. It's because you know that you're only there for a while and then you're leaving. And so you do not become attached. Nobody in the world becomes attached to a hotel room. Right? And we become attached to our homes, our houses. Because it's as if we think we're going to live forever. We forget. You guys are students. You guys will understand this. Your dorm room. If you look at the difference between how someone decorates their dorm room and how someone decorates their house, you will understand my point. It is totally okay to like have no furniture in a dorm room, isn't it? Or just like something cheap used, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not going to go buy expensive furniture for your dorm room, right? Okay. Even if you got furniture, and maybe the guys will understand this. Even if you got furniture, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't buy expensive furniture for your dorm room. Right? Okay. <laughs> but, but, go and look at some of the houses. There's a difference, right? And the idea is, even though you're going to stay there, say you were going to stay in that same dorm for four years, but it's still temporary. And in your mind, you know, I'm just traveling. I'm just a traveler. I'm just staying in this dorm, and I'm leaving. And that's your mindset. No one, no one gets attached to their dorm. <laughs> Am I right? You don't get attached to it. You're not like, no, I don't want to leave. <laughs> Please. <laughs> don't, don't. I don't want it to be over. <laughs> you can't wait to leave. The point is, the point is that the mindset of a traveler, there is a natural detachment. Right? Yes, you still interact with your dorm room. You still live there, and you still sleep there, and you still use it. Right? But you don't fall in love with a dorm room. Yeah, and you don't become so attached to it. Neither do you with a, with a, with a hotel room. So the idea here is this, this whole life should be like that dorm. And that's what the Prophet, peace be upon him, is teaching us. Be in this life, this whole life like a traveler. So that you're not so caught up. Because you know you're leaving. That's how he was. Even though he did get here. And he was a father. And he was a leader. And he was all of these things. And a friend, right? And a neighbor. And he played all these roles. But he knew that he was just there like you know, like a traveler who stops in the shade of a tree for a while and returns. And that's called perspective. That's called perspective. And that's how you go through this ocean of dunya without drowning, without allowing the dunya to enter. That things come and go, but you don't allow them to, to, to take over your heart. <coughs> that right there is the perspective and the theory. But here, practically, what does happen is that you might become sort of 
maybe this, this type of reminder refocuses us. It refocuses our heart, gives us perspective. But here is the nature of this life and the nature of the human being is that we forget. And we are forgetful. And in fact, the word in Arabic for human is insan. And insan shares the root with mis- from misyan, which means to forget. So even the root word of mankind is forgetting. We are by nature forgetful. This is why we have something called dhikr. There's something called remembrance and reminders. The Qur'an itself is called dhikr. It's referred to as dhikr because it reminds us. And if we don't remind ourselves of this reality and this truth regularly, then we will forget. And we will get caught up in school and in money and in status and in people. We will. We will get caught up. And we will let the ocean enter. And we will get owned. And we will sink. So this is why God, for example, has told us to pray five times a day. He didn't tell us to pray once a day. He didn't tell us to pray twice a day. And not only did He tell us to pray five times a day, but all these prayers are not all at once. You know? They're not all before you sleep. They're not just, you know, just bring them all together, say a couple prayers before you sleep. No. They are spread out throughout the day. Throughout the day. And there's a reason for that. Because God knows our nature. That we do forget. And we do get distracted by what we're doing in the day. This is why He gave us the prayer to refocus us five times a day. And in fact, when it was first commanded, it was 50 times. When the, the, the story is that the commandment for prayer came to the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the magnificent journey, right? And Israel with Mi'raj. Mi'raj, when he was taken up to the heavens. And it was at that time that God commanded the prayer. And at first, and of course it was the, you know, the, uh, it was intended this way to be five. But at first, and this is to teach us something, by the way. There's a lesson in this. At first, it was 50. And we are told that he had a conversation with Musa, Musa dealt with Bani Israel, the children of Israel. It's like they're never going to pray 50 times. <laughs> Ask God to reduce it. So he went and he asked God to reduce it. And it was kind of reduce, reduce. Finally, he said five. And Musa said, still said they're not going to do it. He was right. <laughs> but the Prophet couldn't ask him to reduce more than that and so he didn't want to ask more than that this is how it was intended so so what do we learn from that first of all let's, let's look deeper imagine for a moment if you actually prayed 50 times a day would you really have time to do anything else it's kind of like that would be all you do And I think that there's a very deep lesson in that to show us that that's actually why we were created. Is that, is worship, that that's ultimately our purpose. And that the rest of the things we do in life are kind of just, you know, that that's the motions. But that our actual life is prayer. Prayer in the sense of worship in every sense. But what God has done is He's given us the five, equivalent to the fifty. But this is to show us, like, to show us 
first the importance of prayer, but at a deeper level, level the importance of worship, that actually our life is about worship, and all the rest of the stuff we do in our life, that's kind of the, um, the fillers, okay? But we live our life the other way around. What we do is this. We take our activities throughout the day. I have a class, I have a meeting, I have a, you know, a game to watch, I have a party to go to, whatever it is. I want to go to the mall, whatever it is that we do. And then we say, okay, when I have time, I'll pray. Right? If we pray at all. It's kind of like, I'll fit it in wherever I have time. As if you were put on this earth to go to class or to the meeting or to go shopping or to watch the ball game. And that that's your purpose. And the prayer, you know, oh, that's what I have to do. So you see what we've done is we've completely left our purpose. Yeah? And instead, we've given up our purpose for the sake of <coughs> a ball game, a trip to the mall, whatever it is that we occupy our lives with. We've lost focus. And you know, it's interesting because you think about how should we actually structure our day. If you want to know how we should actually structure our day, think about what happens in Ramadan. Okay? <coughs> Would anyone schedule anything at Maghrib time? No. It's like, I'll do stuff before Maghrib or after Maghrib, but not during Maghrib, because Maghrib time is when I get to eat. Right? And so it's like Maghrib becomes a pillar in our day, right? Right? But that's just because we're going to eat. Fajr becomes another pillar because that's when I have to stop eating. Right? But the rest of the year, we don't even know when Maghrib is. You notice that the only time you know, you know, this is the only time we know Maghrib to the minute. <laughs> right? It's like there's 30 days, there's 30 days when it's like, there are 30 days when you could ask anyone in the world who's Muslim, when's Maghrib? And we'll tell you to the minute. No, 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 it's not 8.30, it's 8.31. <laughs> or I'm sorry, it's not 8.33, it's 8.32. Right? But, but then the rest of the, the, the months of the year, you ask them one's not going to I think it's somewhere around 8 or 9 or 7, right? What's the point? Like, what's, what's our issue? Our issue is that maghrib, that prayer becomes a foundation when it has to do with food, right? Missing fajr prayer. Let's look at that. <clears throat> Missing fajr is like, for some people, it's just normal. And it's no big deal. But if you miss fajr in Ramadan, what does that mean? It means you miss sahur. And is that a big deal? Yeah. You guys understand my point? So we'd be, we were really upset about missing fajr, really. It's like, oh my god, I miss fajr. No, it's really, oh my god, I miss sahur, right? <laughs> So missing fajr is no big deal 11 months out of the year. But it's the end of the world. I mean, really, people get really upset if it happens for one month. It's a big deal. The point I'm trying to make here is that we have our priorities completely upside down. 
that our day is supposed to be structured around the prayer, and then we fit in the rest of our lives in between. <coughs> that prayer is the pillars, and then everything else fits in between the pillars. And Spala, have, have any of you guys visited Mecca? Anyone gone for Umrah? A few people. You know how when you're there, <coughs> and you're, you're discussing, say you're going to meet up with your group, or with your family, you're going to eat, or you're going to meet. How do you talk about when you're going to meet? After the prayer, before, right? Before Maghrib, after Maghrib, before us. You notice that when you're there, because you have the proper focus, the day is designed around the prayer. <coughs> you don't talk about time. You talk about Dhuhr. <coughs> that was given to us by God. says that you're supposed to take the medicine three times a day at specific times. When you go home and you take that medicine, do you say, well, you know what, I'm going to take it whenever I feel like it. Or I'm just going to take all three doses right before I sleep because you know what, I don't have time. I got class, right? Or I got to sleep. True. The answer is no. You don't do that. Because you know that you need to follow the doctor's orders in order to take care of your body, in order to cure yourself. <coughs> See, God has also given us a prescription. <coughs> First and foremost is the prayer. God has given us a prescription that five times a day we're supposed to take that medicine. And if you don't do it right, meaning that you mess with the timing, or you don't take as many as you're supposed to, it's just like that prescription that you're not taking properly. It doesn't work. We have to know that. <coughs> See, why do we listen to the prescription of a doctor? What's the reason? Well, because we know the doctor knows best, right? The doctor knows best of how to take care of us. So we trust the doctor. We trust his knowledge. He knows what he's talking about. Isn't it funny that we trust the human doctor, but we don't trust the Creator? I mean, do you think that the Creator told you to pray five times a day and He doesn't know what He's talking about? Do you think that He made you and doesn't know how to take care of you? You get it? 
we trust human beings. If we have a Toyota, we trust the Toyota manual tells us how to take care of the Toyota. We're not going to go see a Nissan manual. Because you know the one who made the car knows how to take care of the car. But yet we don't seem to think that the one who made us knows how to take care of us. And we don't follow the rules, do we? But when you don't follow the manual, who do you hurt? When the doctor tells you, don't drink poison, it's not good for you. It's not going to be a good idea. Don't drink poison. It's going to kill you. And you decide that you're a big rebel. Okay? <coughs> so you're going to go home, and you're going to say, I'll show that doctor. I'm going to show him, and I'm going to drink this whole bottle of poison. In fact, I'm going to drink two bottles of poison just to show the doctor what a rebel I am. Because I'm, I'm hard, right? <laughs> Who are you hurting? Who are you hurting? Hurting yourself. You're only hurting yourself. And when God tells us that there are certain things we're supposed to do, and certain things we are not supposed to do, and we decide to go against those prescriptions, we are the ones drinking poison. We don't hurt God. We don't hurt the doctor. We are hurting only ourselves. <coughs> so we have to break out of this idea that that Islam, that our religion is just, you know, a bunch of rules, right? And that I just want to rebel. Because it's not a bunch of rules for the sake of rules. It is for our own good. It's a manual of how to take care of ourselves, how to take care of our hearts, how to take care of our souls, and how to take care of our bodies. And it's just like, I mean, it's just ironic because we will listen to a doctor, everything he tells us, to the letter. We will take the medicine on time. We won't skip a dose. We won't take all the doses all at once because we want to take care of ourselves and we know he knows. We have a, we have a blender, for God's sakes. We read the manual of how to take care of the blender. We don't just make it up ourselves. We ask the manufacturer how to take care of a blender, but we don't ask the manufacturer how to take care of this. Something so much more valuable than a cheap Toyota or a, or a blender or a Mercedes. Okay? Even more valuable than the body that we have right here is the heart and the soul inside. We take care of our bodies. Some of us take care of our bodies really well. We feed our bodies. We're, we're careful to breathe. Right? We exercise. We do all these things, right? We take care of our bodies. We work out, we want to you know, be you know, in shape and everything, which is great, right? This is part of our amana. But it's interesting that we take care of our bodies, but we neglect our hearts. We neglect our souls. And it is the soul inside of the body that actually remains. Because what happens to the body? What happens to the body a hundred years from now? Everyone knows the answer. It, it becomes dirt. It becomes dirt. This body that we're so worried about, right? We're worried about how, you know, how many times we feed it, how many times we, you know, we work out, we, we take care of it, we keep it warm. We're so careful about our body, aren't we? That body is going to become dirt 
but you're so careful to take care of it. The soul underneath it, the heart underneath it, doesn't become dirt. The soul underneath it continues. You know that? And so, what we have done is actually extremely tragic. Because we take care of our body, which is becoming dirt, but we neglect our soul, which lives forever. Right? Our soul, you know, lives forever in the hereafter. It lives forever. That's the one we're neglecting. But we're very careful about our temporary body, which is becoming dirt. We will eat every day. We will feed our body. Nobody says, I don't need to eat today because I ate last week. I'm good. Right? But we don't feed our hearts. We don't feed our souls. You know what the food of the heart is? The food of the soul? It's the remembrance of God. It is the prayer. But we don't we don't care about that. We can starve the heart, that's okay. We can starve the soul, that's okay. But just don't starve my body. We can miss Fajr, but just don't make me miss Suhoor. <laughs> right? We're worried about the food of the body, but we are not worried about the food of the soul. This is the reality, isn't it? Another thing we do is we clean the body. Right? No one says, I don't need to take a shower, because I took a shower, you know, back in September. <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be, you wouldn't want to be in the same room with that person, right? How come? What's the reason? It's not really good. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. Water, um, that person will be covered in, in um, dirt, in sweat, right? And will smell that. That's a physical, physical smell, physical dirt. But you know that the heart also gets dirt on it. The heart also gets, smells bad. But we don't smell it in the physical world. And the thing that makes the heart dirty is our sins. How do you clean the, the heart? Clean the heart through repentance, through tawbah, istighfar, and, and turning back to God and seeking forgiveness. That's kind of like the shower. Okay, that's the bath. But the problem is, we are like those people who say, ah, I don't need to take a bath today because I took one last year. I repented, you know, like when I was 14 or something. I don't know when, when we last repented. But think if that was the last time you took a shower. Can you think about that right now? Maybe it was Ramadan. What if the last time you took a shower was Ramadan? Right? Like, we would, that would be really problematic. But many of us, the last time we've taken a bath for our hearts is a long time ago. It needs to be consistent. Because just like you keep your body clean, you need to keep your heart clean. And then finally, is there anyone who says, I don't need to breathe today because I breathed. I took a couple breaths yesterday. I'm good. Or I'm going to miss a few breaths today. I'll catch up tomorrow. We don't do that because we know that the body needs air, needs oxygen to stay alive. When a person is not praying, it's just like the one who's not breathing. But it's the heart that ends up suffocating. Make sense? Our prayers are like oxygen for the heart, oxygen for the soul. And when you're not praying, 
it's like the one who's saying, oh, you know, I'll miss a few breaths. You know, maybe miss, miss like three hours of breaths. Yeah, I'll catch up tomorrow. But we don't see this, and so we don't understand that it exists. Because everything we believe in has to be something I feel and I touch and I see. But that's very, very deceptive. Because the most real things in life are those things you cannot see. Can any of us see God? No. But He's real. Can't see the angels, can we? But they're real. We can't see Jannah. We can't see paradise. We never did. We can't see hellfire. Never did. But those are real. We have not seen our grave, but it is real. We haven't seen death. Anyone seen death? Their own death? No. But it is real. So the reality is that the things that we cannot see are real. And just because we don't see them, and just because we choose to deny them, doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean that they're not going to happen. You know, if you have an exam coming up, and you choose not to study, you choose just to party, and to just pretend that there's no exam, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It will happen. You still have to take it, and you just end up failing. We are all going to die. And if you live your life partying, just pretending that that exam is never going to happen, that we are going to meet God. And the fact that I deny that, or that I live my life as if it's not going to happen, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It does happen, but I just end up failing. Just like that exam that I didn't study for. We have to make these decisions. We have to be conscious of what's real and take care of those things that are lasting. Take care of those things that are lasting. We have to establish the air of the heart, which is in the remembrance of God. It has to be established wherever you are. Just like, I mean, it, it's not like when you're busy studying, you don't breathe, right? Is there anyone who's like, no, I'm too busy to breathe right now, right? It doesn't happen. And we can never say that we're too busy to give our heart oxygen. The remembrance of God is oxygen. Prayer is oxygen. Okay, so we have to be very careful. And the timing of the prayer is crucial. Just like I said about the doctor and the prescription, it's supposed to be at a certain time. God knows what He's doing, believe me. And when He said Fajr is at this time, from this time to this time, and it's an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes, it's because it's supposed to be at that time. It doesn't mean that it's whenever I feel like waking up. Okay? God knows what He's doing when He prescribes something for us. And if I choose to ignore it, I do not harm anyone but myself. Remember that when you drink poison, you don't harm the doctor. You harm yourself. Okay? When you don't eat, you're only harming yourself. When you don't breathe, you're only harming yourself. You're not harming the doctor who told you, you need to eat, you need to breathe, and you need to not drink poison. Okay? So keeping in mind this taking care of the heart, feeding it, giving it oxygen, and cleaning it through the, re the pet repentance. Finally, um, is the protection of the heart. Okay. We have to protect our hearts. Just like we protect our bodies, we protect our homes. You know if you have like um, a lot of valuable jewelry, okay, or a lot of valuable things in your home, where do you put it? 
Here, Abraham is asking God, do not disgrace me on the day when everyone is brought back. He's talking about the Day of Judgment. The day when neither wealth nor children will help any person. You know, we live in this world of monopoly money, right? Wealth and status and power, they seem to help us. In reality, they don't help anyone. The day when neither wealth nor children will help anyone. إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ Except for the one who comes to God, returns to God with a heart that is sound, with a heart that is salim, with a heart that is, that is healthy. From this we learn that this is our jewel, this is what we have to take care of. Because this, the health of this, is what's going to determine forever for you and for me. So that's pretty important, huh? right? Well, I said about that exam, right? You know, a year later, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter. I'll tell you what doesn't matter. This matters. The heart matters. Because now we're not talking about a year or a day, but we're talking about forever. Forever is determined by the state of your heart, by the health of your heart when you leave this life. In what state was your heart? How was your heart when you returned back to God? Is it a healthy heart? Or is it a sick heart? Or is it a dead heart? There are a lot of people walking around. Their bodies are alive, but the heart is dead. Because they don't feed the heart, they don't give oxygen to the heart, and they don't clean the heart, and they don't protect the heart. So of course it's dead. And they look like they're alive, but it's only the body. Makes sense? It's just an illusion of life, but it's actual death. The Prophet ﷺ said, the difference between the one who remembers God and the one who does not is like the difference between the living and the dead. That's true death. It isn't the death of the body. Because the body is not, that's not the death. The true death is the death of the heart, the death of the soul. By not remembering God, by not knowing God, by not being close and worshiping and remembering Him. So what I wanted to, to remind you and myself it's that while we go through our life, just like you continue to breathe while you're a student and while you're getting married and while you're doing all these things in life and getting a job, building a career, going to med school, whatever, you're still continuing to breathe because you have to stay alive. And in the same way you continue to eat and the same way you continue to bathe your, your body, that you have to do the same for the heart. You have to continue to give the heart air through the remembrance of God and the five prayers. And remember that they were commanded at a certain time for a reason. Don't break the prescription and think it's going to work. You have to follow the prescription. 
and have your priorities straight. You know, sometimes we miss prayer for the most ridiculous reasons. You know, <coughs> this is kind of a funny um, example, but think about it for a moment. Sometimes people miss prayer because they say, okay, I'm in class, or maybe I'm at my job, or maybe I'm at a meeting, or I'm at the mall, or I'm watching the game or something. Okay. But now think for a moment, if you are in class, or you are in a meeting, and you need to use the bathroom, okay? And it's like, seriously, an emergency. You have got to use the bathroom. My question is, what do you do? Is there anyone in the world, <coughs> an adult, who would say, anyone in the world who's an adult who would say, actually, um, this meeting is too important. Um, I think I'm just going to take care of my business right here. I'm not going to use the bathroom. I'm not going to go to the bathroom to use the bathroom. No one does that, right? No one says, I'm in this exam or I'm in this, this class. I'm not going to get up and use the bathroom. And the reason why we do that is because it would be too humiliating, wouldn't it? And yet we have no problem being humiliated in front of God by missing the prayer. So we don't want to miss the bathroom. We'll, we'll make time to go to the restroom. But we will not make time to go pray. So isn't there a problem? If you're asleep in your bed, and no matter how comfortable you are, and no matter how tired you are, you need to go to the bathroom, what do you do? Tell me what you do. <coughs> everyone, everyone has the same answer. I pull myself out of bed, even if I have to rip myself out of bed, and I go to the bathroom, don't we? So why is it that we will get up out of bed just to use the bathroom, but we will not get out of bed to pray? In fact, we might even get up to use the bathroom and go back to sleep and not pray. Right? It's just because I don't want to wet my bed. It's, right? I mean, really think about it. What's the reason? It's because, like, we have been, we have been, um, what's the word? We have principles and our principles are that it's not okay to use the bathroom anywhere outside of the restroom. That's just the principle. And we've all accepted it. Even though it's not a physical necessity. You guys feel what I'm saying? No one goes around and says, oh, you know what, I don't have time to use the bathroom, so I'll just wear depends. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? No one does that. And that's because we make priorities. And yet, with prayer, it's just like, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time. But yet, you have time to go excuse yourself and use the bathroom. Or I was too tired. But yet, you're not too tired to get up and use the bathroom. One other really funny example is, if I told you that at the time of Fajr, like say, okay, about 6 a.m. or whatever, whatever time, that every day at 6 a.m., there would be a bag full of cash right outside your doorstep. I'm talking like not just a couple dollars, but like a thousand dollars. Say a thousand dollars full of cash at 6 a.m., but that it would be taken away at 7. Okay, my question is, anyone in this room going to be like, I'd rather sleep? <laughs> 
Raise your hand if you'd rather sleep. Raise your hand, honestly. And I know you won't be telling the truth. <laughs> Nobody would do that, right? Because what's the big deal? Wouldn't you set your alarm? You'd set like 50 alarms. Yeah? You'd be like, call your neighbor, call your friend, please. You can't let me oversleep, right? You can't let me oversleep. It's only going to be out there for an hour. If I oversleep, it's a disaster, right? It's the end of the world. And then how would you feel if you overslept? Right? You'd be kind of upset, right? Kind of really upset. Now imagine it was a million dollars. Now being upset is going to be like, right? So at this point, you have everyone on your block calling you to wake you up, right? And you have like every alarm in the house. And we do that for money. We do that. We do that for something finite. But you know what? To wake up and pray Fajr is worth infinitely more than that, any amount of finite money. We don't value, we don't see the true value of things. Because waking up and praying to God, now we're dealing with God. And it's not a finite, God is not finite. And God's reward is not finite. You know, Jannah is not finite, right? Jannah is not just a million dollars. Jannah is like infinite, infinity. So what's happened is we just aren't using our brains. That's really what's happened. We're not actually making the right decisions because we don't see things properly. But if you saw it in that way, if you saw it in that way, even if it was a million dollars, you would never miss that opportunity. Right? I'm going to tell you something funny. Shalom and do that. That's a million dollars. We do that, and we do more than that for like $50. And I'm going to prove it to you. Black Friday. <laughs> right? No, come on, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, how much do you say? Right? These deals that people camp literally outside for. How much do you say? Not, forget a thousand dollars. You're not saving a thousand. You save like 50 bucks and people stand outside in the cold, in the freezing cold at Tehejud time. <laughs> that's their Tehejud. So don't you think that's interesting? So it's not theoretical. This is actually happening. People will lose sleep. People will stand outside at the crack of dawn, and sometimes they will stand outside, literally camp outside, stand in line in the freezing cold just to save a few dollars. But we won't get up and pray, right? So this is the reality. This is the the state of humanity. We don't see things properly. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. So I think I don't know if we have a few minutes for questions. Yeah. Anybody have any questions? Any brave soul want to start us? Yes. I have a question. When when it comes to like um, you know sometimes you know you have like you have to make a decision that sometimes is you know it's very hard you know like. How, you know, what, what, what would you suggest to think about? What would you suggest to, like, you know, uh, focus in when, when you do make a decision that's, you know, like, it's, uh, you know, it, it's just a lot of butterflies in there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, what would you suggest to... <coughs> so, <coughs> do you, um, 
is the decision something where you don't know which way to go? Or is it a decision where you want something, but you have to sacrifice it, something you want? It, 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 I guess it would go like in people's perception, kind of, you know, like, you know, because, you know, like, there's, like, I feel like that you should, like, um, when doing something, you would go, like, step by step. But there's sometimes where it's, like, that critical step, you know, mm -hmm. you, you can do, like, in the intermediary steps, but there's always that critical step okay. that, you know, like, that you, you really need that, you know, that, just that gut. Oh, okay. to just do it like oh. how would you like for example speaking in public some people find that yeah. okay so I guess there's different ways to look at the question the question is about making decisions and when you have to make difficult decisions and it sounds like when you have to make very important decisions right so um, I think those are two different issues one is when you have to make a very um, you have to make a decision and you don't know which way to go okay that's one aspect Another aspect is when you have to make a decision and you know what you need to do, but it's difficult to do it. Okay, so yeah. I think that there's there's both of those options. Um, and to the answer to both, for when you're making a decision and you don't know which way to go, um, <coughs> Allah has given us this amazing tool called istikhara. Istikhara is a prayer um, that we're taught by the Prophet peace be upon him, and if the prayer itself is you know simple, you 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 pray two rakats with the intention of istikhara, so two units of prayer. And then you read this dua, this supplication. Now the supplication itself, it's not too long. You read, you read it you read it in Arabic and um, uh, read the translation if you want. But basically the, the, the meaning of the dua of istikhara is that you begin by acknowledging that God knows and we don't know. That God is able and we're not able. And then we are asking God to do what is best. So we begin by saying, if this thing is good for me, then make it happen, put blessing in it, make it easy. And if this thing is not good for me, then take it away from me and take me away from it, and then bring me what is good for me and make me pleased with it. This is very all-encompassing dua. Now, people can make us very sakhara about anything. Um, you know, it's, it's something that people do, you know, with marriage, with job, with, you know, um, making a decision about a school to go to. But, but istikhara is really the attitude that we should have about everything in life, which is always asking God to do what is best. And being willing to accept that sometimes we want things which are not best for us. Okay? When we ask God to take those things away from us, but to replace them with things that are good for us and to make us pleased. That's very perfect, you know. Also, in terms of decisions that you're not sure. Decisions where um, kind of steps you have to take, where it's something you have to do, you know you have to do it, but it's difficult to do. Um, in that case, again, you seek the help of God. You know, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that we can't do anything on our own. And that's one of the problems, I think, one of the big deceptions of the world that we live in is this illusion of self-reliance illusion of self-reliance thinking that humans are self-reliant that, that we got this we're you know we're we're in control and that's a complete illusion and it's a complete lie we we are not in control of anything we are not able in and of ourselves without the help of God to do anything so so always always asking God for help is 
crucial. If you try to rely on yourself, you won't be able to do it. If you try to just do it on your own, you won't be able to do it. You know when we pray, and we say at least 17 times a day, And the meaning of this is, you alone do we worship, and you alone do we seek help. So we need the help of God in everything that we do, even in our, and especially, and even in our worship. So in our worship, we need the help of God. We cannot be good Muslims unless Allah helps us to be good Muslims. We can't be successful in anything unless God helps us. So what I would say is seeking the help of God and not trying to rely on yourself. Actually, you know in the question you said about public speaking, um, it reminds me of the example of Moses, actually, Musa Because Musa Moses had to do like the scariest public speaking ever, which is to face Pharaoh. Yet that was his mission. So I mean... We just talk to like regular people, nice people, you know, like people who actually are friendly and, and want to listen to you. That that's our public speaking. But that his public speaking was to talk to like the greatest tyrant to walk the earth. You know, the man who was killing babies as a policy. That was what he was. And that's who he had to approach. But we have a lot to learn from his supplication, his dua. He asked God's help. Rabbishrahli Sadri. Oh Allah, expand my chest for me. And make my matters easy for me. He was a prophet, but he's asking God for help. Make my matters easy for me. Take the knot out of my tongue so that they will understand my words. So this, this is the spirit we should have, is asking God to help us. And this, this is actually the dua that I make always before I give a lecture. Anytime we're going to um, speak, you know, we have to talk, give a talk, or um, even just, you know, you need to talk to a friend about something really important. Make this dua, you know, the, the dua that Musa made.